Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hi everybody and welcome back. Yes, great to have you back with us. Thank you for for joining us once again. Um, Before we get stuck into our usual uh, pre-show patter, shall we talk about Facebook, Bethan? Yes. So, if you're listening and you are a Facebook user, there are a couple of things you can join and join in with. We did have a group that was huge that got disabled, which was amazing because a Facebook algorithm accidentally picked something up that wasn't offensive, but thought that we were dangerous individuals. So we have a new Facebook group, so there's not as many people at the moment, but we're going to try and get that built back up. We've also got the page, which is just where we post the official stuff. So there's not really discussions on there, but that's just for the official things. So if you don't necessarily want to join a group, you can be part of that page. Um, And then if you are a Patreon supporter, there is also a Patreon only group for patrons of Seeing Red, True Crime Enthusiast and UK True Crime. So um, that's where we can have a few more discussions around some of the patron episodes and some of the content that you can see there. So you've got a few different options. Instagram, still carrying on as it was. So carry on using that. And Twitter, still carrying on as it was. So if you use those, you don't need to worry. But the Facebook thing's been a bit of a bit of a mare this week <laughs> yeah it's been a nightmare so um it's it's in no way the person who posted that meme's fault either i want to make that really clear mm-hmm. um, it's Facebook's i keep trying to fault. tell him that and he still feels really bad but I it know. was just a, a total misunderstanding on facebook's part i reckon because they use bots don't they oh fuck knows but yeah i mean that I don't know. I'm. I said to you, didn't I? I'm glad that it's you that manages the Facebook group because if it was me, I would have absolutely cut my nose off to spite my face by now and just said, "That's it. Pulling the plug on it. Forget it. Um, we'll just have Instagram and Twitter." Um, but you've got a lot more patience than me, so um, so we will yes, build I the do. group. I do. I do a podcast up. with you, Mark. So that's obvious. Fucking <laughs> cheek. Um, right. Let's move on to uh, thanking our wonderful Patreon supporters. Uh, these are the people that have signed up over the last week. Yes, so a huge thank you to Rachel Adams, Kat Jones, Katie Graham Whitehouse, Mafon Afong, Vicky S, Kelly Seldom, Alex Cassie, Sam Carrick, and Vera Atterbury. And then also signed up on an annual basis are Mandy Bragg, Sonia Toomey, and Jason Abercrombie. And I'm really hoping that I pronounced Mafon correctly because I have Googled, I've done some research. If I've got it right, then I know the ins and outs of what your name means from like a really old sense. If I've got it wrong, please come and tell me how to say it properly and we'll do it again properly. Um, and thank thank you to Jason for signing up. Jason was the person that posted the meme. Jason, you really didn't need to sign up and uh, give us compensation for the Facebook group being closed down. But Well, do you uh, know what? Jason was already one of our uh, patrons. Uh, yeah, he was, wasn't he? So he's just gone mm-hmm. annual. Okay. I think he swapped. Yeah, thank you so much, Jason. Uh, but you didn't need to do that, but we're very grateful. <laughs> uh, if you want to join these people, we've had over 80 of you sign up uh, this year so far on Patreon. Um, your support over there makes a huge difference to us and we, we can't believe how much it's growing. Um, so if you would like to sign up, if you're able to sign up, then please head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Or if you can't be bothered to type all of that in, uh, you can just Google Patreon at Seeing Red and you'll find our page. And we've got loads of stuff going on over there. 
We've just launched our book club, uh, so we're all going to meet virtually and discuss that. I'm probably going to bring that forward uh, to possibly the end of March, early April, because uh, I think a lot of people have already read the book. I know you've read it, Bethan, um, but a lot of people have been in touch to say they've read it. So I'll be in touch to all of our patrons with a, a date and a time and a place, essentially. So uh, so we've got that to look forward to, but we've just released a bonus episode. We release a bonus episode on the last Friday of every month. Um, we send stickers and all sorts of stuff, depending on the tier. So, um, so do take some time, take a couple of minutes, check us out over there. Some of the content is available to everybody, some blog posts that I've done. So if you're not able to sign up, then you can still access some of the content. Amazing. And do come and join us over on the social media pages and get chatting about the episodes. I feel like this week and next week's second part is going to be one that people are really going to want to discuss, Mark. You've I think you've really made a lot of people happy by wanting to talk about this case. I can't believe that we go in there, can you? It's the one case that if someone said to me, some markup and his true crime in interests this is the case I would always go to. I think it's probably the first case we discussed as new co-workers. So yeah, he's going there, guys. I remember me, you and Sarah in particular at work uh, discussing this one at length. And my, my opinion... Little shout out to Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Shout out to Sarah. Hi, Sarah. My opinion of this case uh, and who is responsible has changed dramatically uh, over the last couple of years. So what I felt now was probably the right time to record it because I could be quite authentic with what I wanted to say without the risk of being sued, um, which they love to do. So, um, yeah, it is Maddie McCann. We are going there. As Bethan just alluded to, it's going to be a two-part episode. Even over two parts, we can't possibly cover every aspect of this case. Um, but part one is very much standalone to part two. So we have made the decision just to give ourselves a bit of time uh, to release part one this week and then part two next week. And then we will be having an end of, no, a mid-season break of a week. Uh, so you'll only have a week without an episode, but this two-parter is going to be over two weeks rather than in one go, which we've done a lot of. Um, but we won't be doing that on this occasion. So um, we are talking about Maddie McCann. We're going to be taking a fresh look at one of the most world-renowned missing persons cases in modern history. A case which has received a storm of media attention, the like of which has never been seen before. After 14 years and multiple police investigations across Europe and beyond, we have yet to solve the case of missing Madeline Maddie McCann and her fate remains a mystery to this day. So before we get stuck into this, because it is in-depth, let's hear from the first of this week's show sponsors. In the next two episodes, we will be re-examining the events and circumstances that unfolded in the run-up to Little Madeline's disappearance, as well as the controversially sloppy handling of the investigation by the Portuguese police and the subsequent worldwide campaign to bring Maddie home alive. As we all know, this case remains unsolved and consequently, we will be spending some time discussing a number of popular and plausible theories of what may have happened to Maddie, uh, and we'll be doing that in part two. Madeline Beth McCann was born in Leicestershire in 2003 and lived with her parents in Rothley, also in Leicestershire. 
She was the eldest child of her parents, Gerald, Jerry McCann and his wife Kate McCann. Maddie also had younger siblings, twins Sean and Amelie. At the time of her disappearance, Maddie was described as blonde-haired and pretty, with blue-green eyes, a small brown spot on her left calf, and as we all know, I'm sure, a distinctive dark strip on the iris of her right eye. The McCann family, along with a group of friends, arrived in the Algarve region of Portugal for their week-long holiday on the 28th of April in 2007. They were a large group of nine adults and eight children. The group all stayed at the Ocean Club Resort in Praia de Luz, a small municipality and popular tourist spot situated on the sun-drenched coastline of the Algarve in Portugal. The Ocean Club Resort was a purpose-built holiday complex that was made up of holiday apartments and luxury villas. The resort boasted four swimming pools, numerous tennis courts, a gym, several restaurants, a kids' club and beachfront access. Being on the higher end of the pricing scale, a stay at the Ocean Club was what you might call an upper middle class holiday. It was exceedingly popular with middle class couples and wealthy professionals holidaying there with their families. The McCanns and their friends were booked to stay at the Ocean Club Resort for the whole week and for the first five days the holiday was going great. It was said that little Maddie was having an amazing time. Almost all of the McCann family's time in Praia de Luz was spent within the Ocean Club Resort complex, where the family made the most of the resort's impressive facilities. The children spent most of their daytime hours under the care of the resort's kiddie club, being looked after and entertained by the resort's own childminders, whilst Kate and Jerry played tennis, socialised with their friends and other holidaymakers, and lounged by the pool or at the nearby beach. My massive issue with all of this is exactly that. You've gone on holiday with your family, spend time as a family. This really winds me up. And I know it has nothing to do with with anybody's guilt or not guilt. And and actually some of our listeners might be listening and thinking, actually, Beth, and I want to go on holiday and have a break for myself as well. And that's what the resort's childminders are for. But in my opinion, they should be there for the odd occasion not to dump your children with so that you can have an adult holiday. You've chosen to have children. I just think it's ridiculous. If you don't want to have children, take children on holiday, leave them at home with the grandparents and go have an adult holiday. Yeah, I, um, it's such a difficult one because I've, I've tried to stick to the facts with this as much as possible. Um, but y- yeah, I agree. I think that that's my personal opinion too. I think that... Um, I found it quite sad, actually, that Maddie was experiencing things for perhaps the first time or going on exciting adventures. I think one day they were taken to the beach um, by the kiddies club, childminders, all of the kids were taken and they had a great day and the parents weren't there to see that. And I think that's quite sad, actually. Um, so, so I completely see where you're coming from. I think some of our listeners will feel exactly the same as us. Some of them will totally get it and be like, do you know what? The kids have a better holiday that way. Uh, they're around children their own age. They're experiencing more things than we could enable them to experience if, if we were with them. Um, And also we need a break. We needed a proper break to be the best version of ourselves with our children as we could be. So I'm I'm just trying to see it from both sides. But yeah, my personal Mm. opinion is the same as you, Beth. And it's kind of, it's sad. It makes me sad. both sides, definitely. But her younger siblings, the twins, they're so small. And I just think 
you should be spending time with your children. In the evenings throughout much of the trip, Kate and Jerry would dine and have drinks with their friends at the now infamous Tapas Bar, a small restaurant within the complex, and they all decided to leave their children in the hotel accommodation whilst they dined there. And it's here, well, I thought it would be here where the controversy really starts, but clearly it was with the fact that the kids were in the uh, the um, kiddies yeah. club. Mm. Yeah. But no, I know what you mean, like here it really is, because actually in the daytime, that's what they're there for. Yeah. So whether you agree with it or not, they have a job to pay, to to do and they were doing their job, yeah, which absolutely. is to childmind the kids. So, yeah. so whether it's my opinion on that it's good or bad, it's their job and, and why not use them? This is definitely just goes against all of my kind of instincts, really, as a human being, not even just as a mother. The Ocean Club Resort offered all of their guests a late-night crash service that opened between 7.30 and 11.30 at night. At a fee of just £10 an hour, the resort's own trusted childminders would watch over the children, allowing the adult guests the opportunity to enjoy themselves before bed. Kate and Jerry briefly considered this option, but then controversially decided not to take advantage of it. Instead, it was agreed amongst the adults in the McCann's vacation group that they would take it in turns to go back and check on all of the children at 20 or 30 minute intervals throughout the evenings. In Kate's 2011 book entitled Madeline, she explains that she and Jerry made the decision to refuse a late night crash service because they didn't want to disrupt their young children's sleeping routines. She also pointed out that Pride de Luz was very much in low season at the time and that the Ocean Club and the surrounding area felt very quiet and safe, rather like dining in your own garden. And that is, that is a, a phrase or a description that has picked up a lot of traction, a lot of controversy around that. Um, we, we will talk about the resort and the layout um, in a short while. So this decision to not leave the kids in the evening crash um, was almost certainly the catalyst for 10 plus years of pain and misery that would follow. So as I said, to fully understand how that fateful evening played out, we need to discuss the layout of the complex or at least the parts that were relevant to the events unfolded on that fateful night. The McCann family stayed in apartment 5A. Just behind apartment 5A was a large swimming pool. From the apartment, the tapas bar was on the opposite end of that swimming pool. Now, the distance between the tapas bar and apartment 5A is about 60 yards as the crow flies. However, to walk it would have been more like 100 yards because the on-foot route, despite still being relatively short in distance, wasn't all that straightforward. To make the walk, one would need to exit the front door of the apartment and then walk a short distance along a public street that was not part of the complex before re-entering the complex using a side gate. After that, you would simply have to walk along a resort footpath that takes you almost directly towards the tapas bar. Do you know what? I didn't ever know that you had to go out of the actual resort into the main road. Yeah. That annoys me even more now. Because I didn't know that before, but quite a worrying fact, isn't it? Oh, that's ridiculous! Like, so not only are you leaving the children, you're actually almost like leaving them and going out of the resort at one point. Like, what if you got hit by a car on that road? Yeah, like it just—it just seems such a strange, irresponsible thing to do. 
Really odd. Yeah, very odd, very odd. And the idea of a swimming pool being there freaks me out. I'm sure it was locked up. I'm sure there were, you know, safety features like gates and fencing. But swimming pool, that that just bothers me as well. I, I don't know if there were safety features. There might not have been. When I think of resorts I've been to on holiday, not one single resort have I seen gates around a pool in the evening when it's unattended. So... I don't know, maybe it was, but I possibly not. Mm. And it, it might. I've never been to one where it's like a children's resort as True, well. And I'm assuming yeah. because it was children as well that they would. But actually, you're right, they might not have they done. They might not have done, no. And if you think about health and safety laws, my favourite topic, um, they're quite different on the continent. They're not as stringent, perhaps, as we would see uh, here in, in England, where we, we go quite far with it. Um, so it might be that Maddie was trying to make that walk that evening to her parents at the tap bar that's a popular theory and we'll explore that in much greater detail in part two but it is possible that she woke up she became scared got out of bed and attempted to make her way to where she believed she would find her parents and as I said it's quite a convoluted route to the tapas bar so that's quite worrying that that's that's a possibility that she would have to navigate all of those obstacles So the top of the apartment was visible from the tapas restaurant, but not the doors. The patio doors could be locked only from the inside, so Kate and Jerry left them closed but unlocked that evening, with the curtains drawn so they could let themselves in when checking on the children. There was a child safety gate at the top of the steps from the patio and a low gate at the bottom which led to the street. So there were some features there at the apartment that may have prevented Maddie from um, wandering outside onto the complex. On the evening of May the 3rd, 2007, the penultimate night of the family's holiday, Kate McCann put the children to bed at around 7 o'clock as usual. When Kate and Jerry left the room to go for dinner and drinks, Madeline was already fast asleep in a short-sleeved pink and white Eeyore pyjama set and she was cuddled up next to her comfort blanket and a soft toy that she had affectionately named Cuddle Cat. Kate and Jerry met their friends at the tapas bar at their usual table at around 8.30 that evening. I think they'd had a couple of drinks in the apartment on the balcony uh, before making their way to the bar. Can I double check something? So their friends that they've gone on holiday with, um, did they also have children that was like a group thing where everyone would go check? Or yeah. were the McCann's the only group, uh, the only in the group with the, with the children? No, most of them had kids. And do we know, were they in like adjoining apartments or anything? Or I don't think they were adjoining. I, I think they were possibly in the same kind of block. Um So the same kind of wing, if you like. But uh, yeah, I don't think they were sort of next door necessarily to each other, no. So it's understood that the resort staff had noted in their message book in the reception area that the same table at the tapas bar, which provided the adults with a convenient view of the apartments, would be block booked for 8.30 for the McCanns and their friends every single night for the duration of their stay. And that was something the tapas bar wouldn't normally allow, but they did allow it. And I guess that's why they'd written that sensitive information in the bookings book to almost justify why this group could have the same table every evening because that sensitive detail was included um, that they were leaving the children in the apartments each evening. Even though they couldn't see the doors of the apartment or anything apart from the top of the building. Brilliant. 
Many people, including Kate McCann herself, believe that whoever abducted Madeline may have seen that note. Keeping to their normal routine, the McCanns and their friends took it in turns to leave the restaurant roughly every half an hour or so in order to check on their children. Jerry McCann carried out the first check on apartment 5A at around 9.05. When he entered, all three children were asleep and they all seemed fine. However, Jerry later recalled that before leaving to go for dinner, he had earlier left the children's bedroom door slightly ajar. And as he checked on the children, he noticed that it now stood almost wide open. Thinking nothing of it, Jerry quietly pulled it nearly closed before returning to the restaurant, satisfied that everything was as it should be. So um, he did see all three children on this first visit to check on them. They were all there, but there is this, um, the the door was wide open. And again, we'll come on to it in part two. But I have always wondered if Maddie was taken, um, I really believe that the person that took her was in the apartment at that time and I think that they were probably stood right behind that door hiding from Jerry as he came to check on them isn't that chilling yeah so Jerry's that's like a horror movie yeah so literally as Jerry pulls that door back shut that person's fully exposed back in the room Um, but obviously Jerry's on the other side of the room so that is absolute horror movie territory Um, and I do I do think that's possibly what happened we'll come on to it in part two in a lot of detail Kate McCann had intended to check on the children at 9.30, so 25 minutes later, but Matthew Oldfield, one of their friends, offered to do it when he checked on his own children in the apartment next door to 5A. So he was clearly next door to them, but not all of their party were um, close to each other. So I used to think that... um, one of the group of the holiday makers, the the friends and the McCanns, one of them would every half an hour go and check on all of the children, whether it was their own children or their friends' children, but that wasn't the case. They were each taking it in turns to go and check on their own children. But on this occasion, um, Matthew Oldfield said, well, I'm going to check on mine. They're next door. I'll, I'll check on yours. So um, he noticed that the McCann's children's bedroom door was wide open again. Um, But after hearing no noise, he left 5A without looking far enough into the bedroom to see whether Madeline was there or not. Which rages me. I kind of get though, because you're not expecting anything to have gone wrong. This is the fifth day, so you've done this every night. That's a good point, yeah. It sucks, but I, I get it. I think even the whole, the door was a jar but now it's wide open you and you're not gonna think something's wrong unless you have a suspicious mind like we would we totally do Um, i also think that you need to you need to apply a level of common sense to this so you're right they're not mm -hmm. checking on the children to check they've not been kidnapped they're checking on the children to make sure that it's quiet predominantly so they're they're checking they're making sure they're not crying for some reason absolutely so um so i suppose he's dipped his head into the apartment um, and everything's quiet as it should be. So as far as he's concerned, everything's okay. So by 10 o'clock, it was Kate's turn to go and check on the children. She entered the apartment via the unlocked patio doors at the rear and immediately noticed that the children's bedroom door was wide open. Feeling uneasy, she says she approached the door and tried to close it, but then it slammed shut the way that doors often do when there is a strong draft on the other side. This is when Kate realised that something was terribly wrong. 
she saw that the bedroom window and its shutters were wide open. Madeline's cuddle cat teddy and pink blanket were still on the bed, but Madeline was gone. After a brief and frantic search of the apartment, Kate hysterically ran back towards the restaurant screaming, Madeline's gone, someone's taken her. And I can't imagine how that would have felt in that moment for her. If we can, just for a moment, even those that still think the parents were heavily involved in this, just try and imagine that they weren't, because that's absolutely a possibility, that they absolutely were not involved. Just imagine how um, Kate would have felt in that moment, realising that Maddie's gone. must have just been horrific. Absolutely horrendous, and like the sort of thing that just no parent wants to imagine and no parent deserves to ever even think of, no. of happening like it's just horrible like yeah to to kind of do a brief search because you're like well maybe she's just gone off to the toilet and or some or she's gone to get herself a drink or oh I'll find her she's just fallen over and like you'd be thinking to yourself like that's bad enough like she might be injured or something but she's not in the apartment at all that is just horrendous. Yeah, and um, I think you would just know, as a mum or as a dad, I think you would just know, after doing that very quick sweep of the apartment and she's not there, you would just know this is not going to end well. You would know in an instant. I think as well, because of how young she is, she's like four years old, so there's only so much that a four-year-old can do on their own. And yeah, you and the apartments aren't going to be very big. It's not going to be like in your house when you start searching your house and you've got to go in all the different rooms and looking under things and mm. behind things. In an apartment, you've got the bare things that you need. Yeah, there's not loads of clutter. There's not loads of storage. Um, so you would very quickly know that she is not in that apartment. Scotland Yard investigators said in 2013 that Madeline was probably abducted just moments before Kate arrived. As Kate hysterically screamed for help, word of a missing little girl swept like wildfire throughout the resort and quickly spread throughout Prior de Luz, a town that has been affectionately nicknamed by many locals as Little Britain due to the high concentration of British tourists and expats staying there. What followed was an enormous turnout by the expat community and by Portuguese locals who were all equally desperate to see this innocent young toddler returned safely to her family. Dozens and dozens of willing volunteers spread out throughout the town and searched the beach, the nearby riverbanks, parks, side streets, alleyways, swimming pools, local children's play areas, everywhere. The Portuguese police, or the Policia Judiciaria, or PJ as I'll be referring to them, were also alerted and dispatched officers to join the search. As police quizzed potential witnesses, one of the members of the group that the McCanns were holidaying with, Jane Tanner, said that she had also left the restaurant at the same time as Jerry McCann just after nine o'clock to check on her own daughter. And she said that around that time, just after 9.15, as she walked along the public street outside the complex, she had noticed a man with shoulder-length hair carrying a young child walking across a junction just a few feet or so ahead of her. Jane Tanner said that she could not tell what the child looked like, but the man was not far from Madeline's bedroom and he was heading east, away from the front of apartment 5A. 
Bizarrely, Jane didn't think anything of it at the time. However, if her recollection of this important detail is accurate, then it is entirely possible that she witnessed the abduction of Madeleine McCann taking place right in front of her. At that point, she could have been the only person who could have prevented the man from escaping with Madeleine. And that's quite a bold statement to say. So if we take this at face value, um, that was Maddie being abducted and she witnessed it. Um, But... Could she have done anything? Was it suspicious? No. With hindsight, of course, you would say, if only, if only she'd stopped that man or thought, I'm just going to kind of have another look at that and see if it looks legitimate. But I, I understand that the reasons why she did nothing, you wouldn't in the same situation. I just think um, she's going to check on her kids. It's not it's not unusual to her for children to be carried back to their rooms. And I know she's on the main road away from the apartment complex, but it would have felt by now after five nights of going back and forth along that little bit, that that's just part of the route. And it's part, you'd almost start to feel like that's part of your like resort. Yeah. Almost, I, guess. I think you and, would. Yeah. I think you're absolutely um, right. Yeah. Like whilst I do think it's a bit odd that she wouldn't necessarily recognize her friend's child, depending on how the kid's being carried and how the man's walking and that there's no fuss being made, then then you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't think anything of it. You'd just think, oh, that dad's taking his kid home too. Yeah, like I, you just wouldn't, wouldn't go any further than that until the next day or later on and you think, I wonder if that was him. But you'd never know for sure. No. And she must be beating herself up nonstop because that potentially she could have just stepped forward three seconds earlier and they might have crossed paths and she noticed it was Madeline. Yeah, and it's not she it's not just her beating herself up, even though I don't think she could have done anything about it. But that there is a lot of um momentum online around Jane Tanner and um lots of allegations being thrown her way, which is I can't imagine what that's like as as a that's civilian horrible. who's done nothing wrong to be experiencing that. And the other thing, I think that that child being carried by that guy, I mean, that might not have been Madeline, um, but that child being carried by that man, you, you're right. You would just think that's a dad carrying his daughter um, to bed. And that's quite a common sight on holiday at that kind of time. Kids are staying up late um, for those parents who actually do take their children out for dinner with them. Um, th- their evening might come to an end at 10 and the kids are asleep and they're taking them back to to their apartment or their villa or whatever across the road. So it's quite a normal thing to see. So um, Jane Tanner described the sighting to the PJ and she said that the child in the man's arms was wearing light-coloured pink pyjamas with a floral pattern and cuffs on the legs, which is a similar description to the pyjamas that Madeline was wearing that evening. Jane described the man as around 35 to 40, white, with dark shoulder-length hair and about 5 foot 7 inches tall, and she said that he appeared to be of Southern European or Mediterranean descent. Ms Tanner was confident that the man didn't look like a tourist. Later, a family of Irish tourists came forward to report that they had also seen a man carrying a small child wearing pyjamas over his shoulder, and their description of the man was identical to that of Jane Tanner's, and the location of the sighting happened to be no more than 500 yards from apartment 5A, so they saw this man carrying this child a bit further down the road from where Jane saw him. 
According to Kate McCann, the Portuguese police were given this information almost immediately after Madeline was reported missing, but they didn't pass the description to the media until the 25th of May, which is almost three weeks later. So the description of this man that that essentially could have been Maddie's kidnapper. Or a really important witness who could have been found if they'd have released things soon enough and he could have come forward and said, you don't need to look for me because here's my daughter and this is what I was doing. However, I saw this thing or this person or something or heard something. Like, potentially if you'd go straight away, he may still be there on holiday, may not have been on holiday, may have been a local person. But if it's a completely innocent sighting and this guy was carrying his child, more likely to be a tourist, because why would you carry your kid in pyjamas if you live there? Um, But he could have helped to give information. So... Either way, suspect or innocent bystander, why not give that information to the media? And there's a lot of, um, when there's a lot of information being reported in the press and across the media, it's easy for the viewing public to get confused. And we all want to help, but when we're besieged with information, some of it kind of gets missed. So that almost like the less information that can be thrown out, uh, the better. So with this guy, had they, um, I suppose, had they put that information out quite quickly, like you said, he might have come forward and said, look, it, this is legitimate. It, it's, I've not kidnapped Maddie. And that would have been the end of it then, rather than we see it. We're still seeing um, efits of this guy years later. And people are then confused with multiple descriptions of multiple people, um, whereas it would have just died a death quite quickly if, if he'd have come forward, uh, if he'd have been able to. Like you said, he was probably on holiday there um he might have been holidaying there from somewhere else in europe um but they could have found him and and ruled him out pretty quickly the handling of the situation by the pj was the subject of a lot of criticism almost from the get-go when pj detectives arrived at apartment 5a they were annoyed to discover that local policemen as well as other well-meaning search volunteers and friends of the mccanns had gone in to the apartment and rummaged through every single room searching for clues in doing so of course they had almost certainly contaminated if not destroyed vital forensic evidence that could have given the police a significant advantage in the investigation of the crime scene And this is possibly my most frustrating part of this entire case is the police handling of so many things, which I know you're going to go into, but yeah, it's probably my most frustrating part of this whole thing. You should be able to trust the police and you should be able to trust them to do a good job. And in my opinion, none of this was done in a good way in a good job none of mm. this was done well i i, I was um historically I, i've been quite suspicious around l- multiple people entering that apartment and contaminating the crime scene these were clever people some of them a lot of the mccann's friends that they were holidaying with were doctors as well and they were in the apartment so i, I that used to make me suspicious but now i kind of see it that they were all just panicked and desperately searching for this girl and it was like the more people that could be involved in that the better chance they had of finding her and they know that as the hours tick by immediately following her abduction or disappearance it gets less and less likely that she's going to be returned safe so it was all hands on deck at that time absolutely 
Many volunteer searchers were angered also by local police officers not taking the matter seriously. One policeman even commented that the child had, quote, probably wandered off and fallen asleep under a bush. I mean, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's it's possible, I suppose, but like, just fucking get out there and get searching all of the bushes then, you idiot. Yeah, like, if that's the case, great. You've had a wasted evening and you'll find her under a bush and you'll take her home. Lovely. But the alternative's quite serious, so maybe take it seriously. Statistically, it's exceedingly rare for a child to go missing for more than a day, and most children are found within 24 hours. However, as time ticks on, the chances of them returning home safe becomes increasingly slim, particularly if the missing child is vulnerable. I'm not saying Maddie was, but I suppose you could say at, at the age of three, nearly four, um, she, she was a very young child. So by, by nature yeah, of that, that counts as vulnerable. Absolutely. Yeah. In a country that you don't speak the language and you probably don't have great speech anyway, um, your size and that sort of thing, I would say that that makes you vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. I think so. It is said that the first 72 hours after a child goes missing are the most crucial. The numbers show after this time, the missing child is rarely ever seen alive again. However, the Portuguese police didn't appear to be too concerned by that statistic. Several police cars were dispatched to various checkpoints along the Spanish border. They were supposed to set up a roadblock and stop search cars to intercept any would-be kidnappers attempting to flee the country with Maddie. But when it began to rain heavily, the police were observed by nearby journalists abandoning their efforts and taking shelter in their patrol cars for a full 40 minutes, allowing the traffic to flow freely out of the Portuguese jurisdiction and into Spain and potentially beyond. Countless hundreds of vehicles passed by without issue as they sat in their car and did nothing. Any one of those cars, vans or trucks or camper vans could have easily been carrying Madeline away forever. Well, that's so sad, isn't it? Yeah. And that that's so plausible, isn't it? This was only one such example of Portuguese police incompetence. It was widely acknowledged that several unacceptable mistakes were made during those critical hours, the 72 hours after her disappearance. Neither the local border or marine police were given descriptions of Madeline until a few hours later, and local beat officers didn't make house-to-house searches either. According to Kate, roadblocks were not put in place until 10 o'clock the following morning and it also emerged that it took Interpol five days to issue a global missing person alert. UK police officers from Leicestershire Constabulary, the McCann's local police force, soon arrived in Pryor de Luz and willingly offered up their far more advanced policing resources to the PJ in order to help them bring the matter to a close faster. But it was alleged that the PJ were deeply resentful of the UK police's presence in the investigation and in many instances they point blank refused to collude with them or share any information. And I'm I'm conflicted with this because part of me gets that this is a fast moving investigation. There might not be the time um, with a language barrier to bring an outside force in. I can see how that would muddy the waters. But then there's also a huge part of me that uh, understands the need to mobilise extensive resource. And the Portuguese police would have only had so much resource available to them. So why not take on the extra resource that's been thrown your way. 
I get really frustrated when police forces refuse to cooperate with each other because ultimately you should all be on the same page and doing the same job. So like you said, take that extra help. Yeah, it's almost like dick slinging, isn't it? It's like you've got the head of the Leicestershire Constabulary, you've got the head of the PJ, and they're both having a dick swing off saying like, this is my investigation, fuck off. And it's just egos getting in the way of a missing child. Unsurprisingly, the first 24 hours of Maddie's disappearance quickly came and went with no updates on her whereabouts. Okay, so hopefully you've ordered your beers. Um, Let's head back to the story and to the aftermath uh, following Maddie's disappearance. So Maddie's parents, Kate and Jerry, emerged from a temporary apartment that they'd been put in while detectives searched 5A to face an army of journalists, where Jerry delivered a brief but heart-wrenching statement. Words cannot describe the anguish and despair that we are feeling as the parents of our beautiful daughter Madeline, he said as Kate stared down at the ground. He went on to say, We request that anyone who may have any information related to Madeline's disappearance, no matter how trivial, contact the Portuguese police and help us to get her back safely. Please, if you have Madeline, let her come home to her mummy, daddy, brother and sister. As everyone can understand how distressing the current situation is, we ask that our privacy is respected to allow us to continue assisting police in their investigation. Thank you. Almost immediately afterwards, as word of a missing toddler spread, there was an army of journalists, volunteer search teams and random spectators descending into the tiny town of Pride Many of them just wanted to offer their time and energy to help bring Madeline's safe return. They got busy searching nearby secluded areas, handed out flyers to other locals and tourists, and put up missing person posters everywhere. It was all relatively normal given the unusual circumstances. Among the rabble, however, one man stood out a little bit. 34-year-old Robert Murat was a British-Portuguese property consultant who lived with his mother in a villa just yards from the Ocean Club and apartment 5A. As he spoke fluent Portuguese and English, he made it clear to police and journalists that he was able and willing to help should they need any assistance with translation, and the police briefly recruited him to act as their official interpreter, which in itself is just so wrong, isn't it? Because you don't know what he's relaying back in English or vice versa. So he could have been totally disrupting the investigation. He wasn't. But but what if it was somebody else that was willing to translate and had an agenda? Surely the police have translators on the books as well. I would hope so, That's just so bizarre. Twelve days after the disappearance, a British journalist told Portuguese's police that Robert Murat had been asking about the case in a manner that made him feel suspicious and uneasy, almost as if he were just a little bit too interested in the case. On the surface, it seems a largely overzealous and paranoid assumption to make, but in fairness to this journalist, this kind of thing has been seen before. I know that you'll be possibly thinking of a case, I know you will be Bethan, um, where we saw this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's not paranoid at all, because if it makes you feel funny, you need to listen to your gut, and we all know that the phrase of return to the scene of the crime or, or wanting to watch your fire burn, like... 
this is what people do. Yeah, might have known it's you'd bring fire nature. into it. Of course they Standard. would. Um, so, as I said, we've seen this before numerous times. In 2002, for example, Soham child murderer Ian Huntley essentially brought about his own downfall by constantly badgering the police and journalists about the progress of their investigation into the kidnap and murder of two young girls. His excessive interest in the case and his keenness to assist the police only served to raise their suspicions of him. Exactly. It is suspicious. Yeah. There's one thing to want to help and there's one thing to want to be a part of the case in that you're trying to do something good, but there's a big difference between just being overly interested in something. Yeah. Huntley is just one example. There are literally dozens of well-documented examples of killers returning to the scene of their crimes. Some derive a sick kind of pleasure from witnessing the carnage that unfolds following the crime that they've committed. But most often, it's because they want to monitor the situation and regain some element of control. So rather than waiting around to see if they're going to get away with it or not, um, they want to get involved to just reassure themselves i suppose that the investigation isn't heading in their direction i I can kind of get it because i know if i was a criminal and i'd committed a crime i know this would be me because i'd be so worried and so paranoid that i would need to know are they on to me or not you'd be so oh my god it'd be fucking shit wouldn't i i'd be fucking shit you would be the worst criminal everyone says that to me they're like just don't ever bother because you would just go squealing like a little piggy to the police and admit everything so i'm sorry i robbed this thing we didn't know there was a robbery yeah Yeah, just bang me up yeah honestly whereas you're you're the sort of person that would go back to your crime scene to derive some sick kind of pleasure from it wouldn't you I would. Sick, yes, I sicko. would. Anyway, so Murat was acting in a less intense but still fairly similar way to Huntley at this time. So after further investigation by the police, it was discovered that three members of the Tapas Seven, that's the name the media gave to McCann's uh, group of friends and the McCann's, um, they had seen Murat hanging around apartment 5A outside it shortly after Maddie's disappearance. Um, and also an Ocean Club member of staff and two British holiday makers also came forward to say that they had seen somebody uh, they recognised to be him hanging around that vicinity around that time. However, when he and his mother were questioned by police, they both said that they'd been home all evening. Furthermore, the villa where Murat lived was just 150 yards from apartment 5A, and it happened to be in the exact same direction that the man with the long hair um, who was carrying that child had been seen walking so um, so there, there were other links to it as well I've probably not explained that very well but I, I can't um, on the 15th of May in 2007 Robert Murat was placed under arrest his home was searched his swimming pool was drained his car computer and phone were thoroughly examined too his garden was searched using ground radar and sniffer dogs and two of his associates were extensively questioned as well And naturally, the media absolutely went for him. This really was Christopher Jeffries' take two. So if you don't know who that guy is, he we covered um, that case a while ago when we covered the brutal murder of Joanna Yates. Uh, She was a young woman who went missing in Bristol and um, her landlord, Christopher Jeffries, became under suspicion. Again, he was kind of getting involved in the media a little bit and uh, the media had a field day on him and he had nothing to do with it. He was innocent. 
it is an incredible yeah it is it's a it's a horrific thing and it's an incredible um kind of way that that the public will just get behind the media even though a lot of the time we really hate the media but then something like this happens and and people just love to have someone to hate i suppose they love to have a villain well we're we're guilty of it too absolutely no i definitely recommend so that was season two episode i'm just having a little look i think it's episode six um season two episode six definitely go back and have a listen to that because it's a really interesting case and a really sad one from two sides because Mm. joanna's side but also christopher's side yeah it was it was almost um two victims although of course joanne um was victim number one of course but christopher's life was ruined at that time and we've seen people take their lives when they've been under such intense media scrutiny so david kelly could have been murdered but um possibly took his life because he was his name was plastered all over the papers another episode we did where i read a beautiful poem i seem to recall you did you did that was lovely oh yeah i might go and revisit (laughs) that poem later um okay so uh robert murat's name was plastered all over the front pages of all of the major newspapers and essentially he was branded a paedophile a predator and a child murderer However, despite extensive and thorough examination of Robert Murat's movements and private life, there was simply nothing to link him or his friends to the disappearance of Maddie, and Murat was officially dropped as a suspect not long afterwards. In April 2008, so nearly a year afterwards, he was awarded record damages totalling more than £600,000 in out-of-court settlements for defamation and libel claims against each news outlet who had destroyed his reputation by unfairly branding him as the guilty party. And I think Christopher Jeffries got a similar amount, I think it was possibly seven-ish hundred thousand um, for defamation when he sued the newspapers as well. After Murat's release, the PJ were not without a suspect for very long, however. From the very outset of the investigation, the PJ investigators did little to hide their outward disgust that the McCanns would leave their children alone in an unlocked room in a foreign country whilst they drank wine with their friends. From the very beginning, relations between the McCanns and the PJ were shaky at best. The PJ had many questions for the McCanns, as did everyone, but the answers weren't forthcoming enough to satiate the mounting suspicion that was being directed towards Kate and Jerry themselves. Statistically, in the majority of cases where a child is abducted or worse killed, it is almost always perpetrated at the hands of someone either within or close to the victim's family. The police know this and the media know it too, so naturally it didn't take long for some particularly nasty and entirely baseless media speculation to start circulating about Kate and Jerry's involvement. So I have to say at this point, anyone that knows me will be shocked that I've actually said that um, because I, I don't mind admitting for years I was highly suspicious of Kate and Jerry. I wondered, we'll come on to it in, in part two in a lot more detail, but we, we've discussed it for hours, haven't we, Bethan? And I've discussed it with other people. 
Um, I've I've always wanted to avoid doing an episode on Maddie because I knew that I wouldn't be able to say what I wanted to say without fear of being sued. But now is the right time because I have changed my mind based on recent developments, which of course will come on to um, in this case and the suspect that's been put forward. So I, I don't mind holding my hands up and saying, actually, yeah, I got it wrong. I was one of those people that um, was suspicious of Kate and Jerry and thought they were involved in their daughter's disappearance. I don't believe that now. I really don't. Um, and I think most people don't believe that. I think there's still a small element of people that do. And that's that's up to them. That's their belief. But I would encourage you to really look at this case um, holistically and, and bring yourself bang up to date with where we're at. And I personally think in the next 12 months, we are going to see a lot come out about this. We're going to see evidence. We're going to see evidence that she's dead. And we're going to see evidence about who was involved. And it's not her parents. I think, however, there's a big difference between having an opinion on something like you did. You had a very strong opinion, very firm opinion. However, who did you say that to? People you could talk to about this. You didn't berate them in the media. You didn't troll them on Twitter. You didn't do any of the things that a lot of people did do. So, yeah, you can change your mind, but I wouldn't say that you need to at all feel bad about the fact that you used to suspect them because Mm. that was just your opinion and it made it was not like you went off on some witch hunt or anything you just had an opinion so and and it's also it's still my opinion that that they perhaps shouldn't have left the children as they were and as their friends were leaving their children as well i don't necessarily agree with that but they did nothing illegal in that country um and as i said really kate did describe it as like dining in your back garden i I disagree with that description but for her that's how it felt we weren't there it felt safe to them um they were extremely unlucky would you do that would i do that no um but they'd made that educated decision to to do that and they felt that it was safe to them and I would also say it's a really cautionary tale which I adore a cautionary tale but it really is because there are millions of parents that have done that um, perhaps still do it to this day and, and would have done the same in the McCann's situation and would have absolutely been beating themselves up and my god are the McCann's beating themselves up for that decision to this day um so so yeah i'm not i'm not here to defend their decision to leave the children but i think they've had enough um loathing around that from themselves predominantly but certainly from everybody else um so yeah the earliest indication that the media was turning against the McCanns was on the 30th of june in 2007 when a 3,000-word article entitled the madeline case a pact of silence appeared in the sol a Portuguese weekly newspaper. The report, written in Portuguese, stated that the McCanns were suspects and went on to provide details of several alleged inconsistencies between their statements. They alleged that the so-called Tapas 7 knew what had happened to Maddie that night, but they'd all made a pact to never talk about it, and that they'd then agreed to keep perpetuating the false narrative that Maddie was abducted and vanished under mysterious circumstances. Not long after the article was published, Kate and Jerry McCann were made official suspects in the case and they were extensively questioned by the Portuguese police. 
Portuguese police apparently discovered two DNA samples in the McCann's hire car. That was a car, I think, that was hired after Maddie had disappeared. Um, so one of those DNA samples was a, uh, quote, 100% match to Madeline and was said to be the type that hadn't come uh, from clothing or any kind of contamination, but had come directly from her body. Um, also two sniffer dogs from the UK, one trained to detect blood and the other trained to detect corpses, were also brought over to Pride Delivery to help and they allegedly both picked up scents in Kate and Jerry's hire vehicle and so much was made of that that really was a turning point um, for the for the tabloid press it was kind of like we've got you um, this is what we were waiting for we can just run with it now Upon making these discoveries on September the 7th in 2007, so this is what, four months after Maddie had disappeared, Kate and Jerry McCann were officially named as Arguidos, and that's the Portuguese term for official suspects. Um, they were both extensively interrogated by the PJ. Jerry responded to some questions that were put to him, but Kate refused to answer any of the 48 questions that she was asked over an intense 11 hour ordeal um, or interrogation. Um, which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, a lot have said, wouldn't you do anything within your power to help find your missing daughter? Um, so answering basic questions, they asked her a lot of normal questions and she refused to answer them. Um, but, but she would have taken legal advice and that's what she'd have been told to do. So that's her right. But, but yeah, a lot of people took issue with that. It's definitely something that I have a bit of a problem with because, like you said, a lot of the questions are just very simple, basic questions no an ulterior motive that I can see whether she felt like there was that's her prerogative but yeah I didn't I just that's something I do still find very un, unsettling yeah. with this whole thing yeah by now the PJ were alleging that Kate and Jerry had faked Maddie's abduction that they killed her and then hidden her body Months later, however, final forensic reports on the samples that had been found in the car were ruled to be inconclusive, and the PJ were eventually forced to confirm that there was no viable evidence linking Madeline's DNA to the holiday apartment or car. So of course her DNA would have been in the apartment, but we're talking specifically blood or the trace of cadaver. So, um, so yeah, they said it was inconclusive in the end. In July 2008, the McCanns were formally cleared as suspects by the Portuguese court. Portugal's Attorney General said there was insufficient evidence to continue the police case against them. To this day, now 14 years after she disappeared, little Maddie remains missing and is presumed by the police in both Portugal and the UK and Germany, which we will certainly visit next episode, she's presumed to be dead. The McCanns understandably refused to just accept this and have stated on numerous occasions that they are convinced that Maddie was abducted but is still alive and still out there somewhere to this day. They have subsequently vowed to continue searching for her for as long as it takes and to this day the Find Maddie campaign is ongoing and as relentless as ever in its mission to discover the truth of what really happened that night. The coverage of the event by the UK press was met with scathing criticism and was even considered as part of the Leveson Inquiry, which was a judicial public inquiry into the culture, practices and ethics of British press following the News International phone hacking scandal, which again we touched on in the uh, Talisa episode, the fake shake episode. 
The inquiry culminated in tighter rules, policies and legislation being put into place to better regulate the overall conduct of the UK media. In 2009, the McCanns released age-progressed images of how Maddie may have looked at the age of six, and in 2012, Scotland Yard commissioned one of her at the age of nine. Since then, there have been literally hundreds of reported sightings of Maddie in Portugal, Spain, Germany, France and the UK, and even as far-flung places as Brazil, Australia, New Zealand and China. Scotland Yard and Interpol agents regularly follow up on credible leads, many of which have led to absolutely nothing of substance. At least that was the case until very recently. In June 2020, authorities in Germany came forward with some shocking new evidence that could very realistically bring about the conclusion to the case that we have all been hoping for, and at long last reveal for the first time ever what really happened to Madeleine McCann on that fateful night. In the next episode, we'll be discussing this vital new evidence, as well as several other popular theories about the fate that may or may not have befallen the young toddler that night. Make sure you join us for that. It is going to be a very, very interesting episode, and um, I think what we'll do then is we'll pop some discussion threads up on all the social media pages as well, um, so you can then kind of join in and see what your thoughts are on some of the things that we we'll be discussing and bringing up yeah um this it's just epic i can't believe that we're really covering this and i know that so many people are familiar with the case but i wanted to just do a bit of a whistle stop tour of uh, what happened on that fateful night and the immediate aftermath and we love talking about different hypotheses theories um of what may have happened and and i think part two is is going to be um we're going to enjoy that as much as you can enjoy this kind of thing but that that's what we enjoy doing is is looking at what could have happened and we will actually be able to draw a conclusion i think for you so as bethan said yeah get involved after that apologies we're not releasing both together um we will have part two out for you next wednesday though um in the meantime if you want to access some historic content that you won't have heard before uh if you're not already a patreon of the show then please head over to patreon um check us out we've got loads of stuff going on over there as i said at the top of the show so many of you have come over in the last couple of months and we're so grateful for your support it makes a huge difference and it could get us part way to uh, really working on this show a lot more and um, even working on it full time at some point in the future which would be amazing for us so um, your support is valued and greatly received so it's patreon.com slash seeing red podcast so until next week we will see you then for part two of the disappearance of maddie mccann see you then thanks for listening bye bye